Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. So when I started doing media criticism, when I started doing Canada Land, Indigenous issues was not something I thought I would be talking about a lot or covering. Um, It was something very far from my radar. I think it's far from a lot of our radars. I think it's intentionally very far from the things that we think about and talk about. And it became something that we focus on mostly because of this John Furlong case where I don't know what other word there is for it, but the media's treatment of this was just so racist. It was just so different how over, I think, 50 accusers accusing this guy of abusing them, how, how their voices were not heard. And we, we put the focus on the journalist who covered the story as opposed to the accusers. And they're still not believed by many people. That's when I realized that there's this uh, double standard in Canada. And that's what led Canada Land to really focusing on these issues and uh, providing a platform for Indigenous voices wherever possible. So I'm really happy that in this past year, we have done the coverage that we have on issues like the protests at Muskrat Falls out east, the Joseph Boyden controversy, our coverage of that, thanks to a lot of people who've written for us, people like Robert Jago, whose writing we're very proud to present and who I'm glad to see popping up elsewhere all over the place, such an important voice, and Chelsea Vowell and, and Erica Violet Lee, who's been on the show. So this is something that we're committed to, and it's something that we're going to continue with. And I think it's one of the reasons why this Thunder Bay podcast, this investigative serialized podcast that we want to do about Thunder Bay has resonated so much with so many of you. And at this point, I am welcoming, uh, the total is almost at a 1,000 new Patreon funders, thank you very much and welcome. We work for you now. However, we are still not 
there. We need more help, and I'm going to keep talking about it during this month because after this month, I'm not going to talk about it. If you supported us because you want us to do this Thunder Bay show, we still need you to get the word out and get other people to follow in your footsteps. So so please say something on social media. If you've been listening to this, hoping that somebody else would pay us to do the Thunder Bay podcast, we're not getting there yet. We've gotten a long ways towards it, but we're not there yet. So please, this is the time. Go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. And help us make the show, this investigative show with Ryan McMahon looking into what is happening in the city of Thunder Bay, Ontario. Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Thanks. And guys, uh, we are still doing ads through crowdfunding season because uh, we can't afford to lose that revenue as we try to get new revenue. It would defeat the purpose. So this episode of CanadaLand is brought to you by Hover. Buying a domain name for your passion should be the first and biggest step to building your personal brand online. Go to hover.com slash CanadaLand for 10% off your domain. This episode is also brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. For 50% off of your first box, visit HelloFresh.ca slash CanadaLand and enter the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. Paul McLeod, Capitol Hill reporter for BuzzFeed News. There's nothing happening in Washington news, right? So you got time to talk about Canadian stuff with us? Oh yeah, I've mostly been following Canadian news. It's much more exciting these days. I can barely keep any interest on what's happening down here. (laughs) Fantastic. Uh, Today we are going to talk about a shocking series of media scoops exposing the fact that some politicians are actually rich people who want to keep their money. We will also talk about Canada's Weekend with Bernie and we will talk about the so-called Gameshi rules. Welcome back, Paul. Good to be back. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Christine Arnold, Kathy Katrib Reyes, John Francis, Jennifer Butler, Douglas Perry, Tony Gould, Rob Andrews, and Sue Clifford. I'm Sue, and I work um, almost full time as an accountant. And I live in London, Ontario, and decided to support Canada Land because I'm tired of listening to biased media. And it was really the story in Thunder Bay that I really think needs to be researched and told. But in general, I just really think we need more investigative journalism, and Canada Land is doing that. And this episode, Paul, is brought to you by Hover.com. You know, Paul, that building your online brand has never been more important. Never been more important than it is right now. It's all its all that I have. All I have is my online brand. Show the online community, Paul, who you are and what you are passionate about. Your online identity begins with your domain name. That's actually true. It actually matters. We put a lot of thought in, like, should it be, should it be a .com or a .ca? We went with a .com. We were sort of snubbing our nose to .ca. To hell with you, .ca. We wanted a .com. Hover has over 400 domain extensions to choose from to help you brand yourself online. That is a lot of choice to help you find the perfect domain name. Let's say you are a blogger or a company trying to create new leads or inform your customer base. You can use .blog instead of the generic .com or .biz. By using .blog, you are telling everyone to expect impactful content about your topic or business rather than a generic homepage. Stand out and brand yourself online with the perfect domain name for you or your business. New customers can even get 10% off of any of the 400 plus extensions offered by going to hover.com slash CanadaLand. 
Paul, how do you feel about the ongoing coverage of Bill Morneau? Well, I feel like I only just recently got a handle on it because for the first like week to week and a half, I and I haven't been covering this. As you say, I'm down here in the States, so I'm basically taking this in as a news consumer, this story. And for the first little while, really couldn't even piece together what was going on. It started with the CBC story about how he didn't disclose a French villa, which then was immediately kind of changed to say, well, he did disclose the French villa, but he didn't disclose the corporation that owned it, but it, it was only existing to own the villa. And then there was a story about how he didn't have his assets in a blind trust, but because the ethics commissioner had called for or recommended a conflict of interest screen instead of a blind trust. And it took a while to get to this point where, where like, I just couldn't understand other than that he was, you know, rich, which, you know, Global's reporting his monthly dividends and all that, which we, you know, we already knew this guy was worth tens of millions of dollars. I could not figure out what was going on. Now, I think I do. I mean, there is this really interesting core to this story where there's this loophole, this workaround, where if you own assets directly, then there are certain things that can be imposed on you. Whereas if you put them in a numbered company into a holding company, then you can dodge what could be the price, like the, the conflict of interest provisions that are, are leveled on you by owning them in a certain way, which is obviously a huge problem, but man, oh man, it was a journey to get there. I didn't have the same problem you did necessarily. No? And maybe, I mean, I think I might be less detail oriented than you. I, I, I took two takeaways from this. One is essentially that there's just like a basic concept that you can't have a dog in the fight. You can't actually have interests that your role as finance minister might help. So you put, you're supposed to put everything in a blind trust so that, so that essentially uh, nothing you do can benefit yourself. And he didn't fully do that. He did it in such a way that satisfies the letter of the law, but not the spirit. And in fact, a lot of the stuff that he's able to do as finance minister could benefit him to the tune of millions. Did I get that wrong? Or, or is yeah, that- I think everyone got that wrong. What does a blind trust do there? If you own millions of shares in Morneau Chappelle, he was not on the board of directors, but if you own that, what does putting it in a blind trust do? He still owns those shares. He knows he owns those shares. Putting it in a blind trust does not in any way mitigate his ability to pass laws or affect policy in ways that he can personally profit. That's what a conflict of interest screen does. A conflict of interest screen is supposed to to come into play there. This is like the whole classic Paul Martin owning a steamship line. I mean, it's a bit different because he was kind of more directly controlling it there. But what would have a blind trust do if you still know you own the steamship line and you can still pass laws to benefit yourself personally? I mean, at a certain point, really, there's only two options. You have to either do a conflict of interest screen or if it's just so core to your mandate and your portfolio that that's not enough, then you just you have to get rid of your assets. You have to divest. You have to sell it off. Yeah, I get your point that, that even, even if you take your hand off the wheel of your financial assets, you still know that your shipping company yeah. is a shipping company and you still have your hand on the wheel of uh, shipping policy mm. so you can still benefit that company. And the only way you could, you could do anything about that is just to force them to sell off their assets or do – so what is this conflict screen? What's that? The conflict of interest screen is essentially that anytime something across comes across your desk that would directly impact – your assets, your, you know, whatever it is that's up behind the screen. Well, in fact, it wouldn't make it to your desk. It would go through the deputy minister and they would make a call uh, saying, all right, we are cutting the minister out of this one. In theory, you wouldn't even really know whether or not it's happened, but you're supposed to be sort of saved from yourself. 
Okay, so this is similar to how journalists recuse, uh, we, we recuse ourselves from stories that we have uh, a conflict on. So uh, e- Even a step farther in that it's someone else who makes that decision for you. But yeah, similar thing. Okay, so what's the final takeaway once you, 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 you know, cut through all of the, the conflicting reports and, and the, the, I think, flawed reports the CBC put up at the chalet? <laughs> I know Andrew Coyne was in, in high dungeon about this, that the, the guy is not in keeping with the spirit of the law. He, he, is, he, he is in a position to benefit himself tremendously, and that's not okay. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly better that he ended up divesting his assets. I mean, this was, I mean, it's certainly you were always going to be in a really, really tricky position that owning a massive uh, pension management fund while being finance minister. I mean, to me, the the thing that came out of this that is good is paying attention to this problematic writing of the Conflict of Interest Act. And this is another thing that's been driving me nuts about this whole issue is Mary Dawson, the ethics commissioner, I don't mean to single her out because I think there are a lot of weak watchdogs in Ottawa. I've written about this before with a few few very notable exceptions like Kevin Page, the watchdogs in Ottawa t- generally, I find, were just completely toothless. And Dawson herself has even said in the past that she doesn't see herself as a watchdog and that she doesn't believe that politicians are bad actors. And when they do breach the law, that it's just because they forgot and that they need, need a little bit of guidance. I mean, she spent her time, Tom McCharles of the Toronto Star was reporting this, going after political aid, saying they can't accept coffee cannot buy or accept coffee for reporters last year she went after politicians for going to the press gallery dinner which has been going on for 150 years and typically news outlets invite a politician and they cover their costs and said you can't do that anymore like the week of the the dinner when this has been going on for ages i mean it's just like she's been focusing on this piddly stuff these like really minor things that don't actually impact anything it just feels like busy work well, when she could have been pushing for, I don't know, closing this massive problematic loophole in our conflict of interest legislation. Okay, there's another side to this too, and this is why it all came out, I think, which is that the tax reforms that uh, the liberals are bringing forward are all about uh, supposedly helping the middle class by ending tax shelters that benefit the rich, right? That That's the whole point is that there's abuse of our tax code where people are using instruments that are not there specifically to shield your money from taxation. And we're going to stop people from incorporating for that reason. And, and though what Morneau is up to and others is not explicitly specifically that specific tax strategy, they are themselves exploiting other tax strategies that do the exact same thing. So there's a charge of hypocrisy, which is why the media is focused on this and, and why political opponents have, uh, have zeroed in on this. And then in turn, Sheer gets exposed for doing the exact same thing, right? So uh, th- that part feels pretty... Eh, like, I'm not, no? I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not convinced by that. I mean, no, like the government has the right, like, look, the government sets what is legal in tax policy, and it is completely valid for them to say that some of these things like in- income sprinkling uh, are not fair and we're going to close them. And that doesn't mean that anyone who takes advantage of other legal, I mean, this isn't even a tax avoidance scheme. This is just a, a, a way of owning a company. I mean, this would be completely unaffected by from what I can tell, everything I know, that nothing we're talking about here would be affected by the proposed tax changes of the liberals. So, Well, in that it's a scheme by which doctors avoid taxes, I guess you could fairly call it a tax avoidance scheme. Yeah, legal tax avoidance, sure, yeah, yeah. But I mean... Yeah, well, avoidance isn't evasion. I mean, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> right, but I mean, I guess I don't really see the logic of that, that like any government who... I mean, essentially, they're trying to crack down on doctors and lawyers who are using these... 
these why, why, are you, why are you so quick to dismiss this? I think this is a great thing for the media to talk about and for Canadians to talk about. For all of this uh, conception, I, I hold on. For all this concept about... of Canada as a, as a place where we're overtaxed, 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 and I think that the average Canadian is, Canada's actually got crazy rules by which the rich can avoid taxation and on their estates, through income sprinkling. And if we're going to put into focus, hey, let's crack down on this. I mean, everything we found out through the Panama Papers, uh, CRA basically giving amnesty to tax cheats who were breaking the law. For rank and file Canadians to get angry about this and say, you know what, you guys in the Trudeau cabinet are hypocrites if you're just going to crack down on doctors while you guys are taking, like, why not have a cohesive plan to make everybody pay their fair share? Let's distribute this evenly. See, I think it's the opposite of that. I think we need to talk about this in an educated way. And I actually see this as part of that campaign of if you go after rich people's money, they're going to push back hard. And this is part of that. I mean, if you, you've got now these groups saying like, look, they're hypocrites. They're trying to make us pay more when they're doing the same thing. Well, it's not the same thing. And we can talk about the merits of whether or not people should be able to own numbered companies like everyone else in the world can. But this is not an argument against making these tax changes. And I just, I, I don't know, I see, I do see it as part of, in some ways, this large campaign of pushing back against these changes, which I think I would give good odds are ultimately going to fail because the doctors and lawyers groups and the others that are being affected have been so effective at killing the government over this. And we need to be able to talk about it in a way that's like a little bit educated, like the same thing with the, talking about, you know, conflict of interest screens. Well, what do they actually mean? When are they used? What, why are we using them? Just throwing these around kind of blindly, it just... If this is part of a, a truly, like a reason to not go through with these tax plans or like a reason they're being hypocritical in passing these tax plans, I'd like to see that spelled out a bit more explicitly than like they own companies. Yeah, look, if you're arguing for like a more educated media discussion of this and a more informed one, mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to argue with that. What I've heard from a lot of journalists is just like, ugh, I hate this Bill Moore No story. Nobody cares about numbered companies. And as you say, it's absolutely true that like, you know who cares about them are the lobby groups who are trying to stop any changes from happening. I don't know if this is what you're saying, but I'm hearing a lot of just like, ah, let's move on. This is a witch hunt against Morneau. I would rather actually have a good media discussion about all these problems and, and, uh, you know, like, yeah, taxation. It sounds dry, but I actually actually found, like, uh, as much as we've talked about the Morneau thing on our shows, people really care, and they are really affronted at the hypocrisy of this. Right, and I do want to be clear, like, there are some people out there who are, I mean, you know, Glenn McGregor of CTV is a perfect example, actually has been covering this stuff for years and knows the file and knows how it works and was initially, early on, basically tearing down some of the other reporting, saying, you guys don't know what you're talking about. But there really is an issue here, and, and this, this uh, system he was using of using a numbered company to control his assets to kind of get around what would otherwise be the impacts of it is a completely legitimate story. And I just feel like not everyone is uh, quite at that level of being able to get it as uh, Glenn and some others are. Paul Larry David's cousin came to Canada right. last weekend. Uh, Bernie Sanders was here. He gave a speech... I don't know. There's a bunch of ways we could talk about this. I think Kathleen Wynne's appearance there was noteworthy. But but this is really about optics for the American media, was it not? This is about the ongoing use of Canada's healthcare system as an American political prop. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been really interesting being here in Washington and seeing the way that the Canadian healthcare system is portrayed uh, by some Democrats, because certainly not everyone's on Bernie's side of this, and then Republicans. Because, I mean, if you talk to people sort of along... Bernie's line of thinking, uh, Canada is always presented as this comparatively utopian system. 
and well, not even comparatively, like pretty close to like flat out utopian system. And then you talk to Republicans and it's like they're describing like a like a Soviet controlled like 1980s Belarusian health system where everyone is miserable and there are death panels. And they're just, the two sides are just essentially using Canada as a completely different straw man in this this public policy debate here in the States. In Soviet Canada, government took my toe. <laughs> people, some people still think we, a lot of people still think we have death panels in Canada. Yeah, it sort of forces us into this corner of like, that's not true. Our system is great. Well, our system's not great. Or I don't know, like uh, we're always just sort of uh, having to advocate for it in, in, in relation to how it's being manipulated. And yeah. then we love it. Like Toronto Star's headline, Bernie Sanders, odd. He's odd by Canadian healthcare. I think it, like, it limits our ability to point out the problems with it when we sort of are always – you know, either it's supposed to be this badge that we proudly display, mm-hmm. or there are Canadians who will kind of get on side and say we need to scrap this because I don't know. You know, it's it's interesting because yeah, like you can't really have a nuanced conversation with Americans about the Canadian healthcare system because to a certain point they don't care, right? I mean, they've got issues of their own, and and I will say, you know, one thing about covering a lot of health policy in the last year is that it has made me really appreciate the Canadian healthcare system more, and just that. If just in relation to the American healthcare system, which is an utter mess, where costs are completely out of control, you've got comparatively embarrassingly bad health outcomes, you've got just millions of people whose lives can be ruined in an instant if they get a bad diagnosis or if they get hit by a truck. I mean, it is a complete, complete mess down here, which does sort of foster this environment where I can understand the desire to point to Canada. And to just say, look, we can't keep like living in a society, a rich society where poor people don't have health insurance. So I, I definitely understand it, but it's been very awkward as a Canadian being down here kind of being like, oh, it doesn't entirely work like that. I will say that the entire Bernie Sanders visit felt like Canadians were just sort of dupes or unwitting props in a larger piece of political theater. Everything from the ticket sales, where the the event was almost immediately sold out, but then people in attendance said that there were tons of empty seats. There were some sort of strange machinations going on with who got to sit there. Kathleen Wynne, who'd previously decried Bernie Sanders as dangerous, now introing him and, and embracing him as she approaches a, an election campaign. And his own popularity just absolutely <laughs> eclipses hers, and she's trying to get some halo effect there. Yep. The yep. whole thing just felt like our system is being used for rhetorical purposes, just like – I don't know. I mean uh, I have such a, a, a impulse to just like kick back at this. I think a lot of people there felt just like – voiceless and unseen and that they're they're just supposed to sit there clap for bernie and and let the narrative just roll along you know i do too my instinct is to be is you know that annoying reporter instinct to be like well actually guys like if we get into the granular details of this but I, i think in this case it's actually okay because america is at a crossroads where they need to decide which way they're going with their healthcare system whether they because, uh, I mean, it doesn't look like they're going to stay on this path that they've got right now of Obamacare. So do you double down on that? Do you go more universal? Do you pull back? Do you go more privatized? And they need to have these sort of big existential discussions first before they can get into the details. So I don't know. Maybe at a certain point, it's OK for Canada to be a bit of a straight man and do, to sort of present the the uh, universal health care argument, because it's something that the notion of which most Americans are just starting to open up to. And it's really, really radically changed in the last year or two, uh, the amount of appetite and curiosity about universal health care. So eh, maybe this is just how it's got to be. 
This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Paul, uh, we're going to duly note a couple of things in a moment, but first we have a couple of uh, sponsors to talk about, the first of which is HelloFresh the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. This is like the time of year where I feel like a service like HelloFresh is most valuable when the days get shorter and it's not like there's you know a beautiful farmer's market on the way home. And the task of planning a meal for your family and going and shopping for that meal and then coming home and doing all of that before everybody's like, you got little kids, like they got to go to bed pretty early. To have a box of locally sourced fresh ingredients waiting for you, to have a recipe that's going to take 30 minutes or less and that's kind of idiot proof and that's tasty and that everybody likes and not to have food waste at the end of that, it's really, really convenient when life gets so busy and the days get so short. So if any of this appeals to you, if this sounds like something that you might want to use in your household and you think about trying it out, well, you get 50% off because you listen to this podcast. So you got no excuse not to go to hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and use the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. And Paul, there is one more. Our final sponsor today is a suitcase called Away. They offer high-quality luggage that is designed to be resilient, resourceful, and essential to the way you travel. I fucking love this suitcase. I, I kind of got carried away the last time I was talking about my away suitcase. And um, somebody tweeted that in a perfect world, men would speak of their wives with the ardor that Jesse Brown talks about his new suitcase. <laughs> and I think that the intention was to shame me for the way I feel about my away suitcase. I cannot be shamed. It is a lightweight suitcase. It just changed something. Like I travel a lot and the height of this thing, the ergonomics, it kind of has these wheels that like turn in 360 degrees. I didn't have to hunch over when I push the thing. I can push it in front of me as well as pull it behind me. It just made uh, the physically demanding process of travel a lot less so. 
So you should check this out and you'll get $20 off because you listen to this podcast when you visit awaytravel.com slash CanadaLand. Use the promo code CanadaLand during checkout. Shipping is free. Uh, lifetime warranty on this thing. Awaytravel.com slash CanadaLand. Promo code CanadaLand and 20 bucks off of your Away suitcase. You're right. I want this suitcase more than I want a wife now. <laughs> then my job is done. And with that, we move on to Duly Noted. Paul, what do you have? Oh, okay. So I was going to uh, just give a little hat tip to the CBC because I believe it's uh, next week that they're kicking off their new uh, format for the National where they were going to have four hosts. And I just love this because it's just so perfectly CBC. I, I love you, CBC, but this is just exactly the type of thing that they would do where there's, what, a 70 years now of established format of you have one, maybe two anchors going back and forth delivering the news. Nope, they're going to do four. That's going to be the way of the future is just somehow four alternating hosts delivering the news pretty clearly because they couldn't decide who to give the job of replacing Peter Mansbridge to. So everyone gets it. This is going to be, I think, a complete disaster. It's going to last like a year before they need to make some changes. It makes no logical sense to me. It's my sympathies to everyone involved because it's going to be, I think, a really awkward year or so. I mean, I guess there's like widespread consensus that like the nightly newscast as the voice from the Mount, the voice of God, here's Cronkite, here's Daddy Canada, here's Nolte Nasher Mansbridge telling us the way it was. That's done. And you could either just sort of like sunset that because a lot of old people still do watch it. And that could just be, you know, one thing you still do that maybe isn't the most modern cutting edge thing. But in their interest of keeping this the flagship news property, they're trying to amend it to reflect the times. I mean, you might be right that it'll flop, but I also kind of feel like no one will notice because who watches The National? It gets a lot of attention for a show that doesn't get a lot of viewers. Well, I've asked I've asked people at CBC, like, how is this going to work? And they'll say things like, well, you know, they'll have one person kind of holding it down in Toronto and then they'll have some, you know, Rosie coming in from Ottawa and they'll have people out in the field, they'll have other hosts out in the field. And I'll say, oh, yeah, you know what? We could also just call those reporters or correspondents. You're just <laughs> you're just describing a different job than hosting. So I, I truly... If, if only there was works. somebody to, I don't know, tie all of those various correspondents together yeah. by uh, <laughs> anchoring them somehow. Uh, that would be a way that you could kind of make the whole thing work. I'm sure this must have been tried in like the 80s or the 70s or something, and it lasted like a month at CBS or something like that. Like there has to be a reason no one else is doing this, but I guess we'll find out. It reminds me like, I don't know, when I lived in Montreal, the local weekly, the, the Mirror, we used to joke around, the Anglo community was so small that it felt like everybody got a turn being on the cover of the Montreal Mirror. Mm. You didn't even have to do it. Like somebody would like start like making new t-shirts and then they would be on the cover of the paper. And it's like, it's Canada. Everybody gets a turn. Yeah, so the, coast it, it, in, it, the coast in Halifax is kind of like that. And I love it. Yeah. But, uh, it's the CBC. Everybody gets to host the national. <laughs> you know, it's uh, the old Andy Warhol saying, for everyone will have 15 minutes of hosting the national. <laughs> Duly noted. I would like to talk, Paul, about the Canadian Jewish News, a, a, pub, a publication of interest to uh, many people in my family. Anyhow, I, look, I just uh, something weird happened here. There's a headline in the Canadian Jewish News. It's an editorial by this guy Noah Liu. Uh, as a student at McGill, and the headline reads, The BDS Campaign to Stop Jews from Serving on McGill Student Council. 
and he tells this uh, this harrowing story. I was blocked from participating in student government because of my Jewish identity and my affiliations with Jewish organizations. Now, that headline sets off my alarms of like, if, if, if you're going to get blocked from student government simply for being Jewish, I don't even want to engage with BDS, pro-BDS, anti-BDS. Like, that is like a step way too far, and that seems crazy to me. And, and a lot of people have uh, picked this up, and it's the kind of story that gets passed around by your aunt, and they send it to you, and they're, they're angry. That Like, are we at this level now where Jews can't serve in student government on McGill because people are so virulently anti-Israel? And it's just not true that that's what happened. And and of all places to correct this, The Forward, which is sort of the historical Jewish publication out of the States, this, uh, the New York publication, The Forward, pointed out, no, this guy, he's involved with politics of other political groups that are anti-BDS and then some pro-BDS groups. This is boycott, divestment and sanctions against Israel. Essentially, he was voted off because he he has a conflict of interest where he he supports a policy that a, a lobby group is against. And they said, you're, you're, you're not going to be impartial. The fact that he's a Jew does not demonstrate. He, he, in fact, kind of like willingly conflates. I wasn't allowed to participate. I was boycotted because I'm a Jew and my political affiliations. So I, I just feel like it was tremendously responsible for the Canadian Jewish News to run this piece as is. And it's really weird and interesting that like this McGill student government story is now the subject of like international press attention. <laughs> yeah, if if I could just gently nudge this story with a 10 foot pole, I would say that I think we have this really unhealthy and almost voyeuristic uh, fixation with student politics, which when you get down to it, I find always tend to be very messy and personal. And they tend to have these ludicrous seeming outcomes and often they really are ludicrous uh and we kind of in the media will just pick out certain things that a, a government did or an op-ed that ran in a newspaper and just sort of point to it as like oh look at students today and how crazy universities are and it's not at all a, a holistic view of what's going on and it's in cases like this you often just find that there's a lot more to it than you you know and i just wish we stopped kind of taking the bait and uh, just running these screaming headlines about something that happened somewhere in a university because, you know, usually there's not quite that clear cut. That's a really good point. You could give the same scrutiny to like who won the junior high student council election and like, oh, yeah, yeah some yeah. weird stuff's going to happen there. Is it, Like, it's not like the canary in the coal mine where like this indicates something larger. Often it actually just indicates this. Yeah, it's, I remember. It's just about some little, you know, tempest. I remember student politics and I can very confidently say that none of it was going to be of any interest to anyone not in the circle of that university. And we were all just kind of running around being idiots half the time. Uh, having said that, I will now extend this case to a much larger social uh, commentary. <laughs> no, there is the fact that the Canadian Jewish News was so into this. And like, there, there is this larger thing where like the hunt for like explicit anti-Jewish stuff, like we have to, this is like an internal Jewish thing. And I, I, I was talking about this last week and, uh, you know, if we actually like want any of these conversations to get anywhere, we just have to like not be so quick to, and I know there are anti-Semites amongst those who are opposed to Israel, but like the quickness with which we're like jumping to conclusions, it sets the whole conversation back. And that is something that happened here that I think is evidence of a larger trend. Duly noted. 
Shall we talk about the so-called Gomeshi rules? It's Let's. so confusing, Paul. It's called Bill C-51, and we already had a debate about Bill C-51, but it was a different Bill C-51. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a sort of the cycle. Every new parliament, then the, the bill numbers sort of restart. You say it like it's just uh, such a simple thing, and I guess it is, <laughs> but uh, I'm easily confused. So this is not Bill C-51 about intelligence and the sharing of information and spying on Canadians. This is Bill C-51, which was widely reported as a funny bill that's striking a bunch of old anachronistic laws from the books. Mm -hmm. No more rules against witchcraft in Canada. No more rules against dueling in Canada. No more anti-comic book rules. But there was something else in there. Yeah, I mean, so this was, at least at this point, this is the Trudeau government's sort of signature justice reform legislation. And as you say, a lot of it was just completely meaningless. It was just getting rid of rules that are already not in force. But this provision, which some are calling the Gomeshi rule, essentially it, it expands rape shield laws is one way to look at it. And that's how it's been presented. But in effect, this does something that does not exist, to my knowledge, anywhere else in the Canadian justice system, where it seems to create a reverse disclosure rule. So, you know, typically, if you are uh, accused of a crime, you do not have to present your evidence in advance for why you're innocent. It's the Crown's job, it's the state's job to lay out the evidence of why you are guilty, and then you can rebut that evidence. Now, there are some exceptions to this. There are some quirks, you know, such as rape shield laws. You know, we've kind of evolved our system to basically uh, say you can't just point out someone's past sexual history as a defense, and there will be certain things that are excluded. This is being tied to that, but it's very different. So essentially, if you, well, what you would recall from the Gian Gomeshi trial is his accusers made certain claims and then he came out with uh, correspondence that seemed to contradict what they were saying. And this obviously played a large role in him ultimately uh, beating the charges. And so what this law will do is essentially, if you have items in your own possession that would sort of fall under this category, you have to have a voir dire hearing where you have to basically go to a judge and argue why it's admissible. And again, these are things that were, would otherwise be admissible. We're not, this, we're not just talking about uh, the stuff that would already fall under rape shield laws. We already have those. And the alleged victim would essentially have a lawyer there to be part of that hearing. So why is this a big issue? Because this isn't how the Canadian justice system works. You don't have to present your evidence in advance for any other crime. The reason being, of course, if you did, well, then your accuser could taper their testimony to fit your evidence. It's a huge break from the norms of Canadian law. And what concerns me is that it's just being very quietly pushed through as part of this bill. We have, there hasn't been a lot of discussion about it when there should be. We should have a discussion about whether this is how we want our criminal justice system to work, because... No one's on the, the side of, of uh, rapists and sexual harassers here, but also we need to preserve due process. And we saw this under the conservative government where they invoked Retea Parsons to try to give the states new surveillance powers. And it just I can't not see an analog here where the liberals seem to be taking what happened, the outrage over the Gian Gomeshi trial and using that to, again, give prosecutors to give the state more power. And I think that's an ugly way to go about writing laws. 
Hmm. Okay. So essentially, uh, you're presenting, uh, first of all, you know, the old adage, uh, hard cases make bad laws, and the Retea Parsons case mm-hmm. is an example of that. You sort of mounted the same argument that I've been hearing from lawyers, and most prominently Michael Spratt, who's, yes. been, on, who's been on this show before. Yes. Credit to him who, who, I, who, who talked to about this, and who, I, who is one of the few people who has been kind of spelling this out in a way that's uh, comprehensible for people. Yeah. So, so Michael was on the show before talking about how the media covers lawyers, and he was also actually one of the lawyers who was complaining as somebody who, who is a criminal defense uh, attorney who, who represents people who are accused of stuff like sexual assault, he was making the case that these laws are flawed, both in the press and to government. He's, he's trying to have an impact on this and, and is representing, I think, a lot of lawyers who have this, similar problems. And, and that, that seems to be your point of view here as well. I'll make one little comment that the idea that Gameshi uh, got off the charges, I, uh, except for the one, I suppose, that he apologized for in a plea bargain where he accepted uh, essentially a, a restraining order. But yeah, that's absolutely what happened with the other testimony from the other accusers. And I want to look at this a couple different ways because the media side of this, the fact that this got buried into this larger piece of legislation that was uh, mostly reported as sort of a funny thing absolutely did a disservice to the conversation that we should be having. I agree with you there. We all had so much attention for the Gameshi trial, so why won't we have equal attention for something that might actually have an impact? Because I think a lot of people were absolutely affronted by the fact that the trial of Gameshi actually turned out to be a trial of his accusers. Mm -hmm. And that's what this law is supposed to address. And that was when we, as a society, I think, came to a widespread consensus that when only three out of a thousand sexual assaults result in a conviction, something is fucking broken. And this is an attempt to do something about that. So I've been reading up about this and and there's not a lot in the popular press, but there's a lot in in, in the legal press. And reading what Michael Spratt had to say, you know, there's some concerning stuff in how he he mounts his, uh, his critique here. He says, in a criminal case, an important part of effective cross-examination is the ability to confront a witness with unexpected questions or contradictory evidence. So that is, as he puts it, the crucible in which truth is distilled, especially when you've got cases where there's no actual like evidence. The testimony is the evidence and the testimony is contradictory. There's two sides. It's not a fair fight because there's a presumption of, of innocence. And so it's really like, well, we don't have any documentation. So it's about whether you're credible or not. And we all watched uh, and some of us were, were appalled as these small inconsistencies in people's accounts were ripped apart. And that became evidence that we can't listen to anything they say as tr- as trustworthy because they couldn't remember the model of a car, let's say, mm-hmm. none of which took into account what trauma does to someone's memory, mm-hmm. none of which took into account the process by which these women came into contact with the criminal justice system, which was the chief of police in Toronto, Bill Blair, saying, please be a good citizen. If you have anything that you know about Gameshi's behavior, come forward. We're listening. We're sensitive. We care. And what those women didn't know is that as soon as they set foot into a police station, everything they said was going to be handed over to Marie Hanane. There are things that this law addresses about that, including giving women better access to representation. Some of these women, like, you know, at different points had no representation. They were just witnesses. And then their lawyers didn't have standing. There's stuff that can be done here. And this argument that this contradicts the entire system by forcing people to hand over evidence well, as you put it yourself, Paul, that is what the rape shield law originally did. The idea that, that uh, evidence of a woman's past sexual promiscuity is evidence. Well, now, sorry, you've got to go before a judge. And it's not even like that's completely disallowed. If you think that it's relevant and has probative value, a defense attorney would have to prove that to a judge. And this law just extends that to things like texts and emails. 
Right. Well, see, but not exactly, because, I mean, we as a society have decided that we are educated enough now to know that, like, someone's past sexual history has no bearing on whether or not they consented to a specific incident in question, and we've decided that those things are not admissible, whereas this is much broader than that. It can involve things after the fact that could have a bearing on what happened in a certain circumstance. I'm going to take this back a bit from Gomeshi, because I don't want it to... I mean, it's a broader, and I don't think we should, we should always talk about these things in sort of a broader context rather than in, in specifics of one case. But it seems like this law is trying to solve some problems that are unsolvable through legislation. Things like attacking a witness's memory. I mean, you know, we know now that that happens in a lot of cases, and judges are supposed to know that no one has a perfect memory, and there's going to inevitably be inconsistencies in testimony. I mean, I think what this what this law is trying to address is that, like, someone accuses someone of sexual assault and feels that they have to lie about the fact that they contacted this person a few times afterwards because they feel like that would hurt their credibility. So they lie about that. And then the accused comes out and says, oh, well, look, they texted me. So they're lying. And then that destroys their credibility. I mean, the fix here is not to not let the accused present evidence or have to force them to tip their hand is that it's to all of us to like educate and understand that people go back to the people who victimize them and to understand more in the court system and have the court system be uh, more educated about human behavior I, I think that's the way that you ultimately get fair fair verdicts rather than i mean throwing out our 150 year old standards of due process. And so I just don't, I'm not sure that this is going to fix the problems that they seem to be trying to fix. At the very least, you know, the bill's still early on. We're going to have time to talk about this. Uh, and I think it's something that needs to be talked about. Well, you, you might suggest that rather than just throwing out that stuff, a defense attorney might have to present that to a judge and prove that it's, which is my understanding of what the bill, I mean, the way you describe the bill, Jody Wilson-Raybo says, no, that's not it. This doesn't mean you have to hand over everything. It means that you have to go before a judge. And I'll, I'll, well, I'll also go point before out- a judge, but then because the accuser would have a lawyer present, she's arguing it's not a form of disclosure, but it seems to me to be a, pretty akin to having to disclose to the prosecution. I get the argument that this, uh, you're asking for special treatment for these cases that no other crime, you know, has where you, you've got to tip your hands to the other side. But that is exactly, exactly the problem that criminal defense attorneys had with the rape shield laws when they first were introduced. Right. That was is the exact same argument was made and they were crying bloody murder about this. This is just completely compromising our system. No other crime requires us to do this. And you know what? It turned out to be a good thing. So I'll agree with you. And, you know, we're getting into the actual finer mm -hmm. points of the law itself. And I'm, I'm not qualified. I, I, I know that we could be doing a lot of right. a, a better job. But there's some things that I don't have answers for at all. Like, I don't know what you do about cases where it's just two accounts and, and, and the courts just got to decide who they trust more. And we've seen the judges have some pretty terrible prejudices about when it comes to sexual assault. So I, I don't know what all the answers are, but I'll agree with you that we need to have a, a better and more public conversation about this. And, and that for all the attention we, that we heaped upon the Gameshi trial, uh, how we solve this and, and what new laws we put in place is getting scant attention. Well, that is our Canada Land Shortcuts for this week. Thank you for joining me for it. Yes, yeah, nice talking with you. You can email me out there at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Paul McLeod, where can people find you? 
Uh, you can find me at BuzzFeed News. Uh, I'm on Twitter at PD McLeod. I have a complaints line where you can send me your hate mail. It's at Justin underscore Ling on Twitter. So send all your vitriol there. If you like Canada Land on Facebook, then Canada Land's content will show up on your Facebook newsfeed. You can also find our news stories at CanadaLandShow.com. Our crowdfunding site is Patreon.com slash Canada Land. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton. Syndication, we offer the show for free to radio stations across the country, and that is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do, please support our crowdfunding campaign on patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.